Welcome to the Brownstein Hyatt Farber Shrek podcast series. Join leading industry professionals as they review the current cyber threat landscape and outline the legal and operational strategies needed to protect you, your business, your customers, and your data. Greg Brower, shareholder with Brownstein Hyatt Farber Shrek, moderates the panel titled Protect, Defend, Respond, Recover, a high-level overview of incident response preparedness. The panelists include Ian O'Neill and Sarah Octorloni, both shareholders with Brownstein, Kevin Canaram, a former FBI agent who is now the managing director of Psyopsis, and Bruce Roton, senior director of security solutions architecture with CenturyLink. Thank you so much for coming out so early this morning. Uh, it's an exciting day. My name is Alyssa Naveworth. I'm a shareholder at Brownstein Hyatt Farberstruck in the Nevada Las Vegas office. And um, I want to tell you a little bit about how today uh, came to be. My good friend Randy Robison and I went and get, got some seafood at the Palace Station Oyster Bar, which is iconic if you haven't been there. And uh, over as we were breaking bread and eating some uh, chiapino, he said, you know, we need to have a deeper, more thorough conversation about cybersecurity here in Nevada. The threat that cybersecurity poses is not just for the big ones on the strip, although certainly it, imp- it impacts you know, those as well, but for every small business. And um, I said, you know, it just so happens that at Brownstein, we have um, some, of the, some a highly specialized unit of attorneys that only focus on cybersecurity in our intellectual property group. And so, you know, Randy and I said to each other, we said, this is an opportunity for us Nevadans to have a, a, to bring to bear a really thorough, interesting conversation for our community. And so let's make it happen. And that was about seven months ago over Chiapino. We haven't been back since, but I think after this, we'll, we've earned our bread again. And so here we are today. So let me tell you a little bit about my firm. Brownstein likes to say that we operate at the intersection of business law and politics. But what that really means is that we don't believe that there's a solution, one size fits all solution. It means that we think that when someone comes and says, I like to litigate this, we say, well, maybe there's a regulatory and administrative law solution. Maybe this is about changing the law for the better perspectively. Maybe this is a, a, a corporate solution. Maybe this is a transactional solution. Let's, let's think about this from a multidisciplinary perspective. And so to that end, we pride ourselves in partnering with the best of Nevada to say, how can we push the conversation further in all areas? So we feel like this is an amazing opportunity for us today to focus on cybersecurity. And we want to also thank you, thank our partners here, because these are our partners in many conversations that we've had over the years. The Las Vegas Metro Chamber of Commerce is a leader in, in, in thought here in Nevada. They bring the thought to D.C. with their panels. They, uh, they push us to become better in the community, and we're grateful for them today and for our partnerships um, always. Uh, KMPR, I mean, who doesn't love KMPR? Uh, it's what keeps us going, so we're so happy to have them here today. And Craig and Pike. Uh, we'll, you'll hear more about Craig and a bike from um, Greg Brower, but I will tell you that they're one of the most respected institutions here in Nevada. So I'm grateful for all of our partners here today for coming and um, being here. And of course, CenturyLink, my friend Randy and I, um, I'm grateful that they are here because they have brought their best to, the, to have a panel for you today. It is my honor to introduce the uh, moderator of our, our ceremonies today. He's a new shareholder at Brownstein Hyatt, Barbara Shrek. I had the honor of working with him at the Nevada legislature, um, State Senator Greg Brower, 
And I have so much respect for him when he chaired the Judiciary Committee. It was one of the, the best times of judiciary in the last decade, I will tell you that. But before and after Greg, uh, he has served as the Deputy General Counsel for the FBI. He was the Congressional Liaison for the FBI most recently. And before that, he served as the U.S. Attorney for Nevada. So it's my honor to call him my partner and, and my honor to introduce him today. Thank you so much. All right, so thank you, Alyssa, and uh, thank you all for being here. It's great to see so many familiar faces here. I'm going to be very, very brief and uh, jump right into our program. I also do want to thank our partners, all of our partners, including uh, Craig and Pike, and uh, I will suggest to you that uh, uh, Tom Burns from Craig and Pike, who is here, is probably the most dangerous person in the room today. That's because he's known me since uh, we were both in about fourth grade, so uh, (laughs) Tom knows way too much, uh, but we won't get into that today. Uh, So let me uh, just kind of tell you a little bit about how we're going to do this today, and then we'll jump right into it. I'm going to just say a few words about um, our first presenter, uh, Bruce Rotan from CenturyLink. And he's going to give us an overview, and then we're going to jump right into a panel discussion. And then at the end, we're going to do some uh, audience Q&A. So if if what Bruce says or what the panel discussion uh, uh, brings up in terms of questions that you might have, uh, rest assured, we'll have some time at the end for, for Q&A, and we'll look, we'll look forward to that. So let me introduce uh, Bruce, and we'll kick things off. Bruce is the Director of Security Solutions Architecture at CenturyLink. He has more than 40 years of experience in the IT industry, and he's going to give us an overview of the state of cybersecurity. And I'll tell you, the one thing that we, I think, know for sure about cybersecurity is that the risk is only going to increase for businesses going forward. The real question, of course, and the reason why I suspect most of you are here is, is how can businesses best mitigate the risk that we know is out there and we know is going to increase? And so let's start talking about that with Bruce Rotan from CenturyLink. Bruce? Thank you. So a couple of quick admissions before I get started. Uh, first, as you can probably see from the signature block, I'm a cert junkie. Um, I find that uh, you keep getting new ones to feed the CPEs for the old ones. Um, The other admission is I'm a former hacker. So I tend to see things from a slightly different perspective than most people. um, Because I used to try and break into systems. Fortunately, never arrested. And uh, what I've been told by my friends at the FBI is that all of the things that I may or may not have done, the statute of limitations, has expired on them. (laughs) Good news. So I want to talk a little bit about where we are in the market right now and how things have changed. Um, In the past 10 years, there's been some radical differences, I would say even more in the past 20 years. For example, when I started in hacking, the motivation was generally to break into something to see how it worked. We didn't consider ourselves criminals back in the 80s. We were just explorers. We'd, uh, We'd actually spend money training to figure out how a system worked. Um, Then break in, look around, give it back. We didn't take anything, but things have changed pretty radically over the past 20 years. And one of the things I'll I'll look at here is the the business models. Now, you notice I've got question marks around um, the eroding perimeter. Let's face it, there was never a perimeter. Back in the 30s, the 20s, people took information from their company. They had it in their briefcase. They left it in the cab. They left it on the train. They left it on the bus. It's changed a little bit now, though, in the fact that everybody wants to be mobile. 
and be able to get any data from any device anywhere at any time. And that certainly has changed the perimeter. And there's cloud-based services, bring your own device. I mean, uh, most of you, how many of you are security professionals? Just curious. One? Okay, we're going to keep this pretty high level, so don't worry about that. Um, <clears throat> and also, bring your own device. I mean, everybody uses these, iPads, whatever, at work, and companies allow you to bring in your own device. And that changed a little bit in, in, order, um, in terms of what part of that device belongs to the company versus what part of that device belongs to the individual. And then distributed environments, third-party software. How many of you here would allow your users to go to Staples, buy a software package, and download it onto their system? You're not raising your hand because you're embarrassed, because it does happen a lot. The bottom line is most software, uh, if it's not really brand-name software, probably developed by the low-bid contractor, possibly in a place where bribery and backdoors is common practice. And then social networking. That's changed things in, in a number of ways. And I bring this up because people have bad password policies. One of the easiest ways to break into some place is find the people that work there. Find them on Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter. And here's the thing. One out of ten people at work will use the same password at work that they use on Facebook, LinkedIn, or Twitter account. And the interesting thing is it's usually some combination of their pets' names, uh, their children's names, birthdays, which they put on Facebook. Thank you very much. So it makes it really easy for the bad guy to go find those passwords. The other thing that's changed is the perpetrators. Again, like I said, when I started in that business, we were just exploring, looking around. Now it's all about the money. So people are looking to get in to steal something. Um, they're looking for profit motive. And sometimes it's nation states looking to uh, do what I call battlefield preparation. The other thing is the tool sets. We're going to talk a little bit about tools in a few minutes, but the tools, the wonderful tools, that has changed the landscape in a huge way. You don't have to actually be any good at this anymore. You can just go buy the tools. When I started, um, anybody remember VAXs, VMS? Okay, there's some people in here almost as old as me. Um, <clears throat> in order to learn how to break into that system, I went and took VAX VMS internals class. It cost me $3,500. I was out of my pocket, <clears throat> and I also took DECnet internals, but I needed that in order to write a device driver in macro code so that I could smuggle it onto that system, have the operator load it into the right library, and have it give me privileges. It was a hard process. Now, you simply go to the dark web, find the tools you need to exploit uh, against your adversary, and download them. Rent them, buy them, however you want to do that. Um, the bad guys have also turned it into a business, which is kind of interesting. It makes it Better for them in that they have a business process they follow every time. Some of you may have heard the cyber kill chain, but they have a business process they follow. And it also makes it easier for us because we know that business process they're going to follow. We can then stop them at any point in that uh, cyber kill chain, and we still win. Because at the end of the day, until they get to taking the goodies out the door, if you stop them any point in there, you still get to win. Unfortunately, most... Companies are frozen in time. The security market really hasn't kept up with where things are. 
Now, we look at who the bad guys are, and it hasn't changed any. Probably not in, in 15 years. There's obviously criminals, and the motive is all profit. There's hacktivists, and the motive there is making some kind of political statement. They want to cause harm to your company, but it's based on some statement they want to make. So it's not personal. That's a good thing. Um, then there's nation states. Again, battlefield preparation. They want to get in, see how things work, <clears throat> either take intellectual property. And by the way, intellectual property theft is a $300 billion a year business. So it's, uh, it's kind of critical to a lot of uh, other countries where instead of developing the technology, that's a lot easier just to steal it. And then there's the angry individual. For these people, it is personal. You've done something that irritated them in some way, and they want to cause harm to your company. So what does the, the threatscape look like? Well, most of the time now, it's pretty advanced malware. And the interesting thing is this malware is designed to evade detection. So there was a time when you could use things like antiviruses, uh, anti-malware, and that was pretty good. You could find most of the bad stuff unless it was a zero-day uh, exploit. But that's not the case anymore. And I'll give you a great example. Several years ago, a friend of mine and I were developing some malware code. And what we, we took a system that had something operating. It was an antivirus system. It operated below the operating system. It was resonant in memory, and it was searching for malware in memory. <clears throat> All we did was we got a copy of that code. We looked at how its pointers operated through memory, and we adjusted its pointers. We found the, the, the anti-malware in the system, adjusted its pointers, and when it was sweeping through memory, it hopped over the place where we put our code. It wasn't that hard. It's, uh, and that's the problem we have these days. It's a very sophisticated code. Uh, it's designed to evade detection. What are they after? Uh, financial data, most of the time. Who here can tell me how much a uh, credit card record is worth on the open market? Any ideas? 25 cents for a credit card number uh, with the account, with the pen. You can get as much as $8, however, if you escrow it and insure it. And by that I mean if I sell it on the dark web, and I know you'd be amazed at this, but people will actually do this as a business. They will sell it and then they will guarantee it. So I can get $8 a shot for it. If I sell it to somebody, they take their Bitcoin, they send it to an escrow agent. I send them the credit card numbers. They test them. If there's any bad ones, I resend it and, and fill that order again. Make sure they have a full order. And then, and only then, do they tell the escrow agent to release the funds to me. In that kind of environment, you can get up to 8 bucks. But one of the biggest things is healthcare records. And the reason for that is healthcare records can get a lot more money. Um, I can leverage those for uh, Medicare fraud and get tens of thousands of dollars. So healthcare records can go from $35 to a couple of hundred dollars, depending on the quality of the record. So why are they so common? Tools, tools, and more tools. We'll talk about that in the next couple of slides. Um, weak passwords, obviously a problem. Uh, people putting that onto their, their passwords based on, uh, again, family members, pets. There one, was one uh, celebrity recently. She got hacked. Her picture showed up on the web, and she was bewildered. How could this have happened? Well, starting with the fact that your password was your favorite sports team, which you posted on Facebook. Um, 
spear phishing attacks uh, and phishing attacks. Really common. I'll give you an example of a, a phishing attack in a few minutes. But spear phishing attacks, very directed, uh, focused on specific individuals. Then often they'll look like they came from inside your own company. Anybody know what uh, drive-by downloads are? Familiar with that? So you've been to these websites, right, where there's some moving graphic in the website, Silverlight, Flash, something like that. Well, embedded in that, you can have malware in that, in that uh, moving graphic. Really simple. Um, one of the ones that I worked with was um, called um, uh, Tiny Banker, uh, Tenba, 16K. And they could put it right into one of those moving, uh, moving graphics. So you go to an innocuous site, something that doesn't, doesn't have a lot of security, a gardening site, for example. Uh, my wife got compromised uh, a few years ago. She was at a bonsai site, and they were showing how to repot this bonsai and how to do the, uh, the, the grafting for it. And there was a moving graphic in there showing how to do that, and it was compromised. Uh, watering hole attacks, also really common. And I'll give you a great example of a watering hole attack. Let's say I try to get into your company, and I can't get in. Your company's really tight. All the security's really good, so I can't get in. So I sit in the parking lot, and I watch and see, where do your guys go to lunch? Where do you get your food catered in from? I go to their website, go to that restaurant's website, and maybe they're not as secure. So I replace their menu with my menu. Now, my menu has the same food items, same prices, and a little something extra just for you. So when you download that, that menu, it compromises your system. And what will you do as a good employee? You'll share it with all your friends at work. So now I've got all of them. A nice example of a, of a watering hole attack. And then consider this, exploit or action. Did you have something that exploited your system, or did you say, okay, you can exploit my system? How many of you have been to a website, <clears throat> and you go to hit the little X up in the corner to shut down that browser, and it says, you're about to leave this website. Do you really want to do that? Okay. You've seen that, right? <clears throat> That could just as easily be, hey, I want to exploit your system and take it over. Okay? And you click okay. Frankly, anytime I see that kind of message, I go to um, uh, system control and just blow away that process and then terminate the process. Because I'm certainly not going to click okay when, somebody, when I don't really know what the underlying message is. And then there's the changes in the types of malware. Once upon a time... We had this. Uh, we had the a thing called a dropper, which was the framework of the malware, and it was built with a loader, and it was built with the malware. All of this was bundled together. <clears throat> so you'd get this malware on your system. It would drop the drop the package on your system, unencrypt it, decompress it, and then load it onto your system. People don't do that anymore. Why? Because they want to know who you are before they compromise your system. So now what you have is they're separate. You'll get a dropper that'll show up in one of those drive-by downloads or a piece of software that you got in um, or a, a, an attachment to an email. And then it'll figure out who you are, phone home. The bad guy can then look at your system and go, okay, he's, he's in the financial business. Uh, he's a CIO of a financial institution. So now they know what type of data you have and what type of malware they want to put on your system so that they can go retrieve that data. It's all very well orchestrated. And again, based on who you are and what type of data they think you have. 
I talked about tools. And I'll give you, I'll give you some examples here. The one up in the, uh, your right, top right, is um, uh, Acropolis. Nice little website. I think they're still up and running. You can buy all sorts of stuff there. You can buy malware. You can buy uh, exploit kits. Um, you can rent somebody to do your hacking for you if you're not capable. And this one down here, unfortunately, well, I shouldn't say that. Um, they shut this one down. This is Alpha Bay, the bottom one. You could buy pretty much anything there. Guns, drugs, explosives, malware, exploit kits, DDoS kits, you name it, you could buy it there. Um, and, also, and you could buy it with Bitcoin, so it was thoroughly anonymous. And this one down here, I love this. I, you'll notice that I, um, I grayed out the actual URL. I don't want you to go there. But yes, you can buy $50 bills for 20 bucks a shot. Pretty nice deal. I, I actually had to do the math on that, so I went through the calculations, figure out what the profit margin is. After you get your money mules, you go out and spend these, you buy the goods, you resell them on eBay or wherever, I worked it out. It's actually, it's only about a 15% profit margin. But if you do this to the tune of a million dollars, it's not bad money. Some other tools. Rent a hacker. Seriously. <clears throat> you can rent somebody who will do your hacking for you if you don't know how to do it. On that other site I showed you the, in Alpha Bay, some of the exploit kits, you're going to love this, they're license-based. They're subscription-based. So you don't buy the exploit kit. You lease it. And when they, you download it, and it keeps track of how many people you've compromised with it so that you can't exceed your license. And if you do, they ask you to load up more Bitcoin, and they re refresh the license on the malware. Pretty sophisticated stuff. <clears throat> Another area of concern is DDoS attacks. Have you ever tried to go to a website and you can't get there? They appear to be down. That's possibly a distributed denial of service attack. So they're booting those people off the internet, essentially. Blocking your access, blocking legitimate users' access to that site. So I went out to the site called uh, SourceForge just to see how many free kits are out there. Easy, found like in two minutes. Uh, 16 absolutely free DDoS kits so you can launch an attack against somebody uh, and knock them off the internet. And, of course, if you don't want to do that yourself, I found a bunch of guys down here that will do it for you. You can give them a little bit of money, and they'll take care of it for you. Here's some examples of this. Um, the one up in the upper right here, the hacker's choice. If you like go old school, command line stuff, that's a nice tool. Uh, most people prefer things like Rudy over there, Are You Dead Yet, or High Orbit Ion Cannon, because they're nicely automated tools. All you do is put in the, the victim you want, how bad you want the attack to be, and it'll launch it for you. Here's some other examples. <clears throat> the one up in the uh, left, uh, uh, Vertest, it was originally written to test your vulnerability to a DDoS attack. Who would have thought if I could use it to test your vulnerability to a DDoS attack, I could use it to launch a DDoS attack? Um, Tor. The, uh, the onion router in the middle there uh, makes it easy to be anonymous out on the Internet. And this one, uh, low-orbit ion cannon, don't use that. It doesn't hide your IP address. I mean, unless you're renting some space in a South American server somewhere with a stolen credit card, in, wh in which case it's okay. It doesn't matter. Um, here's one, a great one. Um, TW Booter and this lizard stressor or uh, lizard squad, uh, 
They will launch attacks for you. And you can see down at the bottom, probably can't read that, but those are individual packages. Like there's one here for um, 1,000 seconds. This one up here, 30,000 seconds worth of attack. All you do is you pick the package you want, load up your Bitcoin, and they will launch an attack for you. The one over there, TW Booter, you put in your victim's IP address or range, say what kind of attack you want, how strong you want the attack to be, and they will launch it on your behalf. Now, let's say you don't have any Bitcoins, and you don't know how to use one of these tools. No worries. See the little YouTube uh, symbol up on the top there? There's YouTube videos out there, and yes, they will teach you, too, to be able to launch a multi-gig DDoS attack against your adversaries in less than an hour. So if you don't know how to do it, there's training for it. <clears throat> now for the nasty stuff. How are we doing on time? Oh, I need five minutes? That's not good. Um, okay. So this is locking malware. Now you look at this and go... Who would fall for that? Because, you know, I don't think any of those agencies would actually lock my system because they say I've got kiddie porn on there and then allow me to get my system back by just giving them some money. But people fall for this. And if it, it doesn't matter, really, because if you don't fall for it, your system's locked indefinitely. And the really ugly stuff is the encryption stuff, like CryptoLocker. And this is another form of ransomware, and a lot of people have been hit by that WannaCry thing. That's what this was. It was a form of um, uh, encryption and uh, locking malware. So they get on your system with this malware, encrypt everything on there, and then uh, extort you for the uh, encryption key. Now, there's two reasons why security systems fail. And these two reasons are universal and they're probably not going to change. The first one is software, developed by humans and therefore not perfect. I used to, I used to cut code, and I've never met anybody that wrote 100 lines of code perfect the first time. It just doesn't happen. And when you think about an operating system, we're talking millions of lines of code. Yeah, there's going to be problems in it. There will always be vulnerabilities in large software packages. And the other reason security fails, humans. People also developed by humans and not perfect. This is why social engineering works, and it works really reliably. <clears throat> I'll give you a great example. I'm, I'm a social engineer. I love using it. I don't do it for criminal activities anymore, but you'd be amazed at the, the advantage you can get with just a little bit of social engineering. I'll give you an example. <clears throat> so if you were to see me at the airport with this on, what would your assumption be? that I work at the airport for United. And all it took was talking uh, TSA and Homeland Security out of a transportation worker's badge, because I must be a transportation worker. I work at an internet company. We put internet into, into airports and shipping docks and train stations. So I must need an employee badge to get into the airport. Then at a, at a uh, United lounge, talk to United employee out of their lanyard, Hey, it's a shame you guys don't sell that at the United store anymore. I lost mine, or it broke, and I just can't buy another one. She's like, you really want one? I'll trade you mine for yours. They never had a United store. They never sold these online. <clears throat> but with a couple simple little ploys now, I go to the airport. I get good treatment. When I walk up to the terminal, uh, to the, terminal to the ticket area, uh, they usually upgrade me. 
into first class. They think I work for them. I've actually, one time, uh, several years ago, I made a mistake. They were asking me, hey, are you, uh, are you revenue on this flight? I, I said, no, I'm deadheading. <clears throat> that was a mistake. I ended up in the jump seat next to one of the flight attendants. <clears throat> Won't make that mistake again. But my point is this. Social engineering works. It works really well. Here's an example of some good social engineering. You send out this email to everybody in the company. Hey, there's been a lot of breaches. We've seen a lot of attacks. We want to make sure you have a good password. Click here and put in your username and password. People will do it all day long. <clears throat> I was investigating a breach some years ago. We tracked it down to a secretary who clicked on an email. Actually, it was an email from their, their quarantine. It said, the following email has been placed in quarantine. Reason contains a virus. What does she do? She pulls it out of quarantine, opens it. I'm like, why did you do that? He says, well, look at the title, your package from FedEx. I said, okay. Did you order anything that was coming FedEx? No. You believe in Santa Claus? Why, why would you do this? <clears throat> at the end of the day, social engineering works really well, and that's one of the biggest, biggest things that fails. Now, I'm not going to go through all this. We're running short on time. But what I want to point out to you is this. The old techniques of, I got a firewall and an IPS and some antivirus on all my systems, that's not going to cut it. You really need a programmatic approach to the system. You need to do the battlefield, what I call it, battlefield planning. All of your risk assessments and plans. Then you need to do assessment of what you've got currently, what your architecture looks like. Set up the basic architecture, of course, with firewalls, uh, IPS, IDS, all of that and all of the filtering mechanisms, <clears throat> but then take it to the next level and start looking at doing real intruder hunting. Look for the bad guys. Assume they're there. Last but not least, do monitoring of the entire environment, comprehensive monitoring of the environment, and link that to your intruder hunting program. And last but not least, figure out what you're going to do when you find the bad guys. <clears throat> couple of recommendations. One, when you do a security assessment or a pen test, contract it through external counsel. I'm not doing that because our hosts are attorneys. Okay, but this is a, a nice CYA plan. <clears throat> and the bottom line is, if you do a pen test and they find things, which they will, and they get in and they say, here's all your vulnerabilities, and you don't have the time or money to fix all of them right now, and something bad happens later on, and the shareholders are coming down the street with, with pitchforks and fire in their eyes, and they find that, that you knew, that's going to look bad in court, right? But if you um, do that through external counsel, attorney-client privilege, your attorney holds on to that pen test or that security assessment, and now you didn't know, or at least it's not discoverable. <clears throat> the other thing is, when you go to boot somebody out of your environment, think through what you're going to do. I say this because a lot of times when you find a compromised system and you go to boot them out, that is a system that was an uh, expendable asset in their mind. So you go to crash that system and boot them out of that system, they, they don't care. Did you notice all the other systems that they had compromised as well? So you have to take a programmatic approach to this. Last slide. <clears throat> if you can do anything, at least try and cover the Big Ten. Categorize, evaluate, discover what you've got. A friend of mine used to say, you can't protect it if you don't know you have it. You also can't protect it if you don't know where it is. 
So figure out what data you've got, how valuable it is, and then go find where it is in your environment. Have a good, manage, have a good patch management program. This is what uh, bit uh, Equifax. They discovered a vulnerability on a system, then they kind of forgot about it and they didn't patch it. A good patch management system would have forced them to do that. Um, good filtering, uh, comprehensive event monitoring, and like I said, assume that they're, they're there, bad guys are there, so and hunt for them. Set up an intruder hunting program. Get a, uh, external threat uh, data. Also, avoid social engineering. So get good internal training so people don't fall for those social engineering ploys. Um, assume the loss and encrypt everything. And uh, last uh, couple ones, um, a good uh, risk-based identity management program. In other words, the sophistication of the Identity management should be based on the user's data access. All users are not created equal. A comprehensive configuration management program. Bottom line is, if I pop a system, somebody pops a system, they're going to change something in the configuration on that system. If you look for those changes, it could be a tip-off to you. Um, and last but not least, if being on the Internet is critical to your business, implement some type of cloud-based, high-capacity DDoS mitigation strategy. You cannot do it on-prem. I've had many people say, well, I bought this million-dollar box. I put it at my site, and it's going to stop DDoS attacks. Except that you've got a 500-meg pipe, and if somebody launches a 50-gig attack against you, it doesn't matter what box you put there. It has to be done in the cloud. And I'll leave you with this thought. At CenturyLink, we integrate security right into the network. I had to have some shameless pitch up here. You know that right into the network fabric to make the network more secure, more functional, more cost-effective, and certainly more convenient for our customers. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Bruce. So while, while the panel is coming up, and before I introduce them, just some perspective from the law enforcement uh, kind of vantage point uh, on this issue. So going back to my first time at the U.S. Department of Justice in 2003-2004 time frame, I frankly can't remember uh, much discussion at all about cybersecurity. It just wasn't a major focus of our federal law enforcement uh, efforts. It certainly wasn't a major focus of state and local law enforcement efforts. It just wasn't nearly uh, uh, a uh, significant issue on our, our radar. I fast forward to my time as U.S. Attorney here in Nevada around 2007, 8, 9. It's, it's becoming more of an issue. Your typical federal district U.S. Attorney's Office doesn't do many cybersecurity-related prosecutions, but some districts around the country do, and so it's becoming more of an issue. Uh, Maine Justice in Washington at headquarters is, has a, a kind of a cybersecurity capability stood up, but there's not a whole lot of focus on it. I then fast forward to my most recent stint at DOJ with the FBI, 2016, 17, 18. Uh, I would say in 2016, in our, our morning threat briefings at FBI headquarters, uh, where, where you sit around the table and talk about the threat updates from, from the night before uh, each morning, maybe once a week a significant cybersecurity matter would be uh, briefed uh, in that morning meeting along with, you know, the usual counterterrorism, counterintelligence, ordinary criminal cases. By the time I left the FBI in uh, March, at the end of March of this year, I would say that just about every day 
our cyber, secure, our, our cyber division assistant director would be briefing the senior executives on the cyber attack from the night before, I mean, virtually every day. So just, just watching it from a federal law enforcement perspective, it's changed dramatically uh, over the last 15 or so years, and uh, it's only becoming a, a bigger deal, I would submit. So let, let me just jump into uh, to our panel discussion. I'm going to introduce our panelists uh, briefly, and then we'll, uh, we'll jump into some Q&A. And then, as I mentioned, we'll have uh, an opportunity to, uh, and I'll remind everybody to do what I'm not doing, which is hold the mic uh, closely. We'll have a chance for some audio, uh, audience Q&A uh, when we're finished up here. So to my immediate right is my partner, Sarah Actorloni, who's a shareholder mm-hmm. in our Denver office. Her practice focuses on litigation and compliance matters for consumer finance companies. She previously was an attorney with, the, with both the Office of Thrift Supervision at the Treasury Department uh, and at the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau's Office of Enforcement. To my immediate, uh, actually to my far right, is Kevin Canaram. Kevin is the founder uh, and managing director of Psyopsis, a Colorado-based investigative consultancy, which offers a full range of digital forensic and cyber investigative services. Before starting Psyopsis, Kevin was a special agent at the FBI for 15 years. To my immediate left is uh, my uh, partner, also from Denver, Ian O'Neill. Ian is... uh, Uh, He has a practice focused on data security technology transactions and complex corporate intellectual property matters. uh, He provides compliance guidance to clients on a full range of state and federal privacy regulations, including the FTC Act, the Fair Credit Reporting Act, and the Children's Online Privacy Protection Act, among many others. Uh, You've met Bruce. And so let me kick it off uh, with Bruce, if I could, and a question to the group, and we'll take it one by one. Um, let's start with the, kind of the big picture question. You touched on some of this in your presentation, Bruce. What, how would you describe the biggest cybersecurity threat facing businesses of the type represented in this room today? It really depends on the, on the business. It's very individualistic. So if you have, most, most people that will attack a company, they already know what you have. At the end of the day, they've probably already figured out who the buyer is. So they've already done pre-monetization. They've assessed what information assets you have. They found a buyer for it. And they've already figured out how much they're going to get for it. They need to have that so that they can figure out how much they can spend to attack you and still make a profit. Uh, so again, it depends on the type of business. But one of the one example I'll give you is if you're an online retailer, well then obviously the biggest threat is being taken off the internet. Whereas if you're in healthcare, the biggest threat is probably somebody going after those healthcare records. Yeah, thanks. Ian, how would you address that? <clears throat> I actually would agree completely with that, but I would say it's the other way around. Um, in terms of the biggest threat is, you're absolutely right, the, any attacker or any bad actor on the other side is very well prepared. The biggest threat and the biggest risk and the biggest kind of area of error I see in my practice is a lack of comparable preparation on your side. Um, every attack is different, depending, as you said, depending on the nature of your business. If you have location data, that's what they're looking for is for a specific reason. If you're an online store like Amazon, they're looking for your credit card information of buyers, things like that. So it's essential to make sure that you are tailoring 
your practices. And that's from everything from your IT structure that you know, guys like CenturyLink are helping with through to things like your contracts with your vendors and how you actually manage your workflow and your agreements with the people using your site. It's every level kind of thinking through and being prepared for what those specific risks are from everything from your infrastructure to your vendor relationships to your customer relationships to how you market and how you comply with the different laws. But it's lack of preparation or more um, accurately, it's a false sense of security because you think you're prepared, but nine times out of ten when you start working with a client in this area, they're following the best practices for somebody else. It's like, that's great, and you've done all this wonderful stuff. Um, you haven't done anything to protect you from your legal risks. You've just kind of followed the industry standard for somebody. Thanks, Ian. Sarah, how would you address that? So one of the things that I notice a lot in my work in litigation is it's not so much what somebody from the outside grabs from you. It's what you give to the people on the inside, and that's the vendors and the service providers with whom you work. Data is um, the core of many of our businesses. It's becoming increasingly valuable, especially as it becomes richer and richer. And so there are often times where you will have a service provider or a vendor who um, takes your data and decides to monetize it for themselves. And those are the types of agreements that, and agreement provisions that we really aren't seeing so much in the marketplace because the, the value of data is just now at the forefront. I feel like we're at the leading edge. Um, but we have agreements from four, five, six years ago that do not tell us who owns the data, who's responsible for its safekeeping, and who's allowed to use it for marketing or other purposes or even internal analytic purposes. So I would take a good look perhaps at your vendor and service provider agreements whenever you're sharing your company's data, particularly consumer data, uh, with someone who, with whom you work. Great. Thank you. And Kevin, from the outside consultant's perspective, biggest threat? Yeah, and I think it's important to understand where we come in in the context of after bad things have happened. And uh, a lot of what we're seeing, um, the FBI uh, gathered uh, stats in 2017 for business email compromises, sort of a more granular issue than what everyone else is talking about and focusing. Uh, but the FBI has uh, 2017, the losses for those business email compromises at $674 million. And so that's kind of a, an obscure sort of uh, <clears throat> social uh, engineered type scam uh, that everyone should be aware of and try to thwart those efforts. Thanks. Great. Okay. Let me go back to Bruce and ask you this, Bruce. You know, when I advise clients generally on compliance, my mantra is that uh, good compliance is good business. Would the same hold true for cybersecurity? How would you describe that? Well, I have two thoughts on that area. One, I would say, when you look at compliance, I would treat it like any other risk. So I'll give you an example. If becoming compliant with some standard is going to cost you uh, half a million dollars, and not being compliant and the fine is $50,000 a year, I'm sorry, I'm taking the, I'm not going to be compliant every time. Uh, so it's risk-based. On the other hand, let's say that you're not compliant and something bad happens and the litigation could then be millions of dollars, then I'm probably going to be compliant. So again, I treat it as a, as a risk model. The other thought I have on that is good compliance, while it's probably good business, is not good secu- necessarily good security. Almost every company where I've done a forensics investigation for a PCI breach, 
they had their they had their rock. They were compliant. They just weren't secure. So thinking that you've done their compliance deal and that makes you secure is is a false sense of security. Okay, thanks. Sarah, uh, there are a lot of different types of businesses represented here today, large, small, publicly traded, uh, you know, s- traditional, small, closely held businesses. How do you see the, the types of risks uh, based upon the types of businesses? Do different types of businesses have different risks? How would you describe that? So I think you can divide up the risks based on the type of data that you have in your organization. So I'm um, a former bank regulator, so I work a lot with financial institutions. And so we're often dealing with social security numbers, we're dealing with credit card numbers, all of that sort of rich information that apparently is valued at about 25 cents per item. Um, So, and those are the types of protections that um, can be covered by fantastic security uh, setups. Um, but also contractually as well. And so when you're in the financial services industry, you need to make sure that your contracts with all of your vendors, with all of the people who use your data, with all the people who connect in with your system and and market for you um, are tight and provide your institution the protections that you need. Um, Because not only do you need to be concerned with the usual um, data breach concerns that a target or someone else would be uh, concerned with, but you also have to comply with the Graham-Leach-Bliley Act, which applies to all financial institutions that have this financial data. So there are some very specific compliance obligations that you have um, if you're in the banking business. If you're in retail and you're taking credit cards, uh, your exposure is a little bit different because then you're exposed directly to your consumers. You're also exposed to the banks that uh, have to replace those credit cards in the event of a data breach. You know, one of the major lawsuits that's going on right now is a consortium of uh, financial institutions, banks, and credit card issuers who are filing lawsuits against Target, Home Depot, all of the big retail data breaches because there's a cost and there's an expense to having to replace all those credit cards, to have to monitor for continued fraud. All of these things are responsibilities that you as the retailer um, are going to have to, well, the court will determine if they're going to be pinned on you. Um, but in, in a lot of cases, it seems very likely that in the end, if you're responsible for all of these damages um, throughout the economic uh, infrastructure, that you probably will have to pay for those expenses. Thanks, Sarah. Uh, Kevin, let me go to you. I, um, you're probably familiar with uh, what we used to say at the FBI, especially recently, which is there are two types of companies, those who have been hacked and those who will be hacked, and that's just the new reality. What, what are some of the mistakes that you see businesses make uh, after they hire you and you go in and you look at what they're doing or not doing? What, what usually strikes you as, you know, I, I, I can't believe I'm seeing this again? Uh, oftentimes, as Bruce alluded to, uh, the companies don't realize where all their data is. And that's sort of a preventative thing that you can do in your pre-planning stage. Um, you don't want to do that after a breach. Um, you know, and we all know how many places our data is these days. And also, almost every incident that we respond to, uh, there's always new places where the victim finds the data whether that's the employee's uh, cloud-based account, um, external drives that they didn't know about. Uh, so that's, in the incident response is not the time to be figuring out where things are. Um, and then we also, um, you know, we're a little chagrined when the client really can't tell us from a logging standpoint, 
you know, where things are, who's been where, just because uh, they don't have space or they don't want to keep the logs. Um, a lot of times these things aren't immediately known, especially on insider issues. So we have a big, you know, window where uh, we need data, and if the data is getting dumped every, you know, two days, uh, that doesn't help any sort of investigation when the person doesn't come to light for 30, 60 days. So those are sort of two salient things. Good. When, Ian, let me turn to you. When it comes to a, uh, having a good cybersecurity plan for a business, what, what is the importance of, of infrastructure, if you can address that? So infrastructure, I would say, is one of the things that is one of the quintessential cornerstones of any cybersecurity kind of practice or policy you have in place, and one of the ones that's most overlooked. It depends on the different aspects of where you are. So, for example... Infrastructure, one of the things that I negotiate in agreements, I worked a lot in a regulated industry, the cable company in, uh, industry, that has a specific privacy act, the Cable Privacy Subscriber Act. That, um, so infrastructure was a big thing there for that type of data. You had to be able to recover it. You couldn't share it. One of the things with respect to things like disaster recovery, um, getting back up, that type of physical infrastructure, very easy to overlook. But to go to Kevin's point that he just mentioned, in the response to an incident... This is not the time when you want to be kind of figuring out, okay, how do we get this back up? How do we figure out what happened? Where is our data? Where can we find this? Um, all of that should be something you have thought about in advance. So the infrastructure of your cyber security policies and practices in-house is essential as well as actual physical infrastructure. So by that, I mean you have in place a very well-drilled, well-planned kind of a life cycle of, okay, this is how we take the data in, this is where we know where the data goes, this is how we know where it is stored and deleted, this is how we respond to a breach, and this is how we have a disaster recovery plan so that if the, the bad stuff happens, we can find that data, we can get it back up, we can recover it, and we can deal with the fact that, as Kevin said, you need to know who was affected, you need to know how it was affected. One of the things that I see all the times, especially in data breaches, is this conflation that happens where people kind of conflate trying to fix the problem with trying to respond to the problem at the same time. And so you end up doing more harm than good more often than not because you're now trying to effectively patch a leaking bucket at the same time as you're trying to empty it. And so having a good infrastructure to be able to say, okay, we know how to recover this. We have a plan in place. We know who is going to do the investigation. We have a crisis management firm that will be in the same day. We have a forensics team that will be in the same day. This has all been pre-planned. We know which people internally are going to coordinate with the outside lawyers, are going to coordinate with the outside PR firm. We know who we go to um, the century links of the world to get our systems back up. We may not be fully operational, but we can have at least a structure backup so that we can do our internal investigation, figure out where the data is, figure out who has it. One of the things with disaster recovery and that type of infrastructure is once it's down, for, you have to know who was affected, what, was, what happened, which systems were affected in order to meet certain legal obligations like data breach notifications. If it's Europeans, you've got 72 hours to do this as of Friday. Um, you can't do that unless your infrastructure is built to do that. You can't have a system where you're like, well, we don't have any power because this attack took down our power. Um, for example, obviously the attack took down our servers and we can't figure out even what happened for another month. During that month, that's when all sorts of bad things can happen with that data. 
So uh, thank you for that. So we've, I think, established that no types of businesses or, or even organizations, including nonprofits, are immune to this potential problem. Uh, but Bruce, we, uh, I think we also know that not all organizations are created equal in terms of resources. The, the sort of very robust uh, textbook response that Ian just summarized uh, perhaps is not really uh, viable for a small business. Any advice for small businesses who face this threat? I would say the process is still viable. Just because a company doesn't have uh, good forensics resources on staff doesn't mean they can't leverage good forensics resources. For example, uh, my last company, I worked at uh, Cybertrust and Verizon, and company I work at now, and I'm, I'm sure my colleague at the other end of the stage has this service. You can contract somebody before the fact and have a forensics retainer. And that way, if something bad does happen, they can bring boots on the ground uh, within 24 hours to start the investigation. Um, at the end of the day, it doesn't really matter how small or how big the company is. There are going to be resources that they simply don't have. Uh, I brought that example up with DDoS. It doesn't matter what you put on site. You have to have a partner that has cloud capability to mitigate the really big attacks. So at the end of the day, threat intel... DDoS mitigation, forensics. There's a lot of specialized type skills out there that companies won't have internally, but there are a lot of uh, companies that do have those skills that can provide them. Good. Sir, you mentioned litigation a few minutes ago, and, and so let's talk a little bit about litigation and cybersecurity uh, and insurance. Uh, what, what does a, a business need to know about how those things can work together? So, thank you. Uh, so, when a breach happens, um, there are some litigation risks. And to be honest, there's a little bit of variation between the circuits as to whether or not um, certain people might be able to advance a lawsuit because you have to show particularized injury. Um, so, I would say litigation isn't always going to happen if there's a data breach incident. Sometimes it really matters what happens to that data once it's out. Um, but it, even when that um, litigation doesn't happen, there's still expenses with that. There's still the need to hire in the um, consultants. There's still the need to patch it. There may be um, other types of ancillary expenses. And that's when insurance can come into play. And our experience, and, and I'll deliver this over to Ian as well, because he sees a lot of insurance policies that really would not cover a cybersecurity breach. Right, that's absolutely right. And Sarah hit the nail on the head. Litigation is a, the most obvious and scary risk when a data breach happens, but it's actually probably one of the least actual likely risks. And there's a lot more risks that are almost certain. Sarah mentioned the costs of re replacing credit cards. Usually, even if you know, unless you have a targets of a world where a big lawsuit for most smaller companies, especially, you've signed agreements with your merchant banks, with your acquiring banks, with your processors, that you've agreed to pay those fines regardless and those fraud uh, fraud measures regardless. So, I had this question the other day in a deal I was doing where a client is acquiring somebody that just had a data breach. To you know, what's the average cost per card about that? And right now, I see you can automatically count on $175 to $200 per card for any data breach lost as your um, kind of cost of replacement and fraud allowance that Visa, Discover, MasterCard are assessing right now. You also have other costs that come up that need to be covered by insurance that you haven't thought about. There's reputational damage. How much is it going to cost you in extra advertising and extra PR and crisis communications in order to do kind of the 
the make good work on your reputation. There's things like your interchange rate on your credit card processing is about to go through the roof for a short term. If you are a tier three, tier four entity under PCI, so you've been skating by doing just a self-assessment questionnaire, which is a relatively cheap process, that's going to go away because you're automatically going to be treated as a tier one merchant for the next three years. So factor in another quarter of a million dollars for a um, QSA to come in and do a full report on compliance. There's all these additional fees. In conjunction, about four years ago now, um, they rewrote the kind of standard exemptions on the Accord uh, uh, insurance sheet that cyber incidents, whether it's a hostage situation, whether it's a data breach, are expressly excluded from the vast majority of types of commercial general liability or even umbrella insurance. So if you don't have a specific cyber policy that's well written, you're likely to have a really unpleasant surprise if you try to claim that on your CGL or on your umbrella insurance. Um, that, that used to be kind of a question until about 2013, 2014, when they just rewrote the accord to make it another question. That is expressly one of the standard exemptions. So you need a cybersecurity policy. Even then, cybersecurity policies are not all created equal. Um, you've got to be careful how it's written. Lots of them have lots of loopholes for if it was effectively caused by you know, a social engineering issue, and so you were at fault or your employee was at fault. They may not count things like hostage situations. So if you have a you know, kind of a ransomware situation, they're not going to cover that. They're only going to cover a data breach. If it's an infrastructure situation where it can be blamed on a third-party provider, they may not cover that. So you have to have your policies very closely reviewed, even if you have a cybersecurity policy. Um, my... My standard practice that I tell all my clients, no matter what size they are, whether it's a public company or a two-person startup, and I, I come from a practice where I deal with small startups all, of the time, all the time, especially out of the Silicon Valley area and out of a, kind of a Denver, Silicon Mountains area, is you, know, you have to have at least a cybersecurity policy. It's, you can, it's up there with DNO. It's up there with commercial general liability. And this, uh, you know, they, they can range in price, but... In today's kind of market, you can get them for a reasonable amount for at least a minimal amount. And if you don't, that's basically leaving you exposed to the biggest issue that you have. Um, I will throw out there two examples. The biggest data breach, biggest data kind of um, privacy issue I ever was involved with was also for the same company that the smallest one I was involved in with. Um, and it was with Snapchat both times. The time that it was the largest one, was when it was Evan and three guys working out of his, his condo down in Malibu. The smallest one was when they were a $4 billion company. So the size of the company doesn't necessarily reflect the effect of a data breach. As Sarah said, the nature of the data, the nature of the data reflects the data breach, not the size of the company. Okay, so if, if you're in doubt as to your coverage, call Tom Burns at Craig and at Pike, and he'll sort it out for you, I guess is the lesson learned there. Uh, so, Kevin, let me uh, go to you and uh, ask you about um, dealing with law enforcement. When, a, when an organization thinks it may uh, be the victim of a, a hack, uh, many of us would say, well, the, the, the first thing to do is call the FBI. Many organizations, businesses are reluctant to kind of let the bureau into their system. But, but you tell us, what's the right thing to do if, if a business thinks it's, a, it's, it's been a victim? I think the biggest uh, factor on that decision, um, as sort of a side factor, is you have to understand that they're not there to help you uh, continue your business. That's on you. They're there to collect 
data. Um, you know, they're pretty reasonable in that data. Um, you know, if it were me, I would talk to my outside counsel first. Um, I don't think that there's a huge liability in reporting to law enforcement and the Bureau on things, um, but you have to think a lot of that stuff through. Uh, they're certainly there to find the bad guys, and they, you know, we should all understand that they have infinite tools to track these guys down, as Bruce was talking about. You know, you've got these Tor servers. Um, they're the only people that are going to find the guy in the meantime, but at the same time, that doesn't really help you continue on with your business. And that goes back to sort of the holistic view on, you know, can we get back up and running? Can we limit our liability? Can we do everything in the beginning that a month from now we don't, we're not able to do? We want to do as much as we can in the beginning to uh, think about every threat coming. And I don't know if that makes sense or not, but um, a lot of these collection processes take extra time. We talked about mapping data. We talked about remediating the issue. Uh, the remediation issue isn't all that important, but we don't want to think about in a month, did we, why didn't we collect that one particular uh, log and now it's gone? So I've kind of jumped around a little bit, but I think the biggest takeaway for the law enforcement is they're not there to help you get back up and running. They're also there, not there to help you defend yourself in litigation. Right. Thanks. So let me kind of go to a lightning round now and ask each of our panelists. I'll start with you, Kevin. Uh, if there's one thing that you would have the audience members kind of take away from, from this discussion, uh, and if there's one thing they can maybe do as soon as they get back to their office about the problems we're discussing, what is it? I kind of feel like we're preaching to the choir here. Um, you guys probably are already thinking of things or else you wouldn't be here. Um, but I think a common theme is, um, you know, where's our data? Sarah. I would agree. What, what service providers or vendors have your data? And what contractual provisions um, govern how that's going to be used? And also, what contractual provisions govern who gets custody of it if there's a breakup? Ian. I would agree with both those. Um, to go back to my very first point, it's about preparation. It's about knowing where your data is, what policies are protecting it. That's including employees. It's including anybody who has access, access to it and how those contractual provisions have been put in place to reflect that and protect it too. So it's just preparation, but you know life cycle from your point of collecting data to point of purging data and everything in between what's protecting it internally, and that includes vendor contracts, service provider contracts, internal employee policies, but you have just customized that to your specific business and your specific data, so you are prepared. And to go to your point earlier, it doesn't have to be a big internal infrastructure. That preparation can be, here's my list of 10 different teams, and maybe they all go through my law firm, but it's my SWAT team if I have an issue. Here's, you know, it's, it can all be outsourced uh, with very little kind of in-house, in but preparation. Great, thanks. And Bruce? I guess I'll make it mostly unanimous and say that, yeah, where's my, where's my goodies uh, is pretty critical. But before that, one small step, I would say uh, evaluate and classify the data first. If you don't know the value of, of your assets, 
you can't determine what policies and security environment is appropriate for that particular asset. And I see people all the time spending you know, $50,000 protecting a $10 asset and then spending $50 protecting their million-dollar asset. So evaluate it, classify it, create a policy around it, and then go find it. Great, thanks. Questions from the audience? Anything out there? Yes, sir. Everybody hear that? Uh, healthcare. Who wants to tr- take a stab at that? Bruce, I see you nodding. You want to try that first? Well, uh, CFR 45 Part 160 would be a good start. Uh, yeah, um, there are HIPAA requirements around healthcare data, but I would look at it as uh, one of the biggest problems with securing healthcare data is the security awareness within the in, in the environment itself. Uh, I was at a hospital not long ago, and I walked in to one of the waiting rooms, and I look across the hall, and there's this filing cabinet, and it says, per HIPAA regulation, with two Ps, by the way, great, uh, this filing cabinet must be locked at all times. All three drawers were hanging open. So it's like, well, follow the policy. Great. Other questions? Great question. Sarah, you want to tackle that? I will. So uh, one of the provisions that at least the federal government has to follow, um, and some states as well, they're called system of record notices. So whenever the government creates a big database full of um, individually or personally identifiable information, they are supposed to publicly report it um, and keep an index of the records of those that they have. So if you're in a position where you're concerned that um, a government agency may be collecting information on you, on your business, anything identifiable, that should be a matter of public record. Um, There are some exceptions for um, investigations and for criminal enforcement, those types of databases. But most of the big collections of data should be publicly, should be known publicly. Does that help? Before we take another one, Cindy, are we doing okay on time? We, We have time for one or two more? Yes. Great. In the back. Yes, sir. Okay, so full disclosure, I work with Tom at Craig and Pike, so it's an insurance-related question. I'm not going to plug Craig and Pike anymore. That was it. You got it. Appreciate that. Uh, So, Ian, probably mostly for you, you talked a lot about the insurance bit. So couldn't agree more. They're all different. One thing I would really add is that, you know, a lot of these policies do come with a data breach coach. So those of you that have the policies, make sure you take advantage of that resource. Lots of times those are attorney firms. But my question is, where have you seen the top two or three claim denials, and what were the reasons for it from an insurance policy? So I would say you can even narrow it down to the, t- uh, the variations of the top couple of denials I've seen in the last, say, 12 months. You can even boil down to one thing, and that's just um, uh, internal policy kind of stupidity. It's human error. It's, um, you know, I can throw out some examples. One that was denied a few months ago was uh, right around tax time. So right around February, when W-2s were going out, January, February, um, a secretary received an email, not even a spear phishing attack, just a general email that said, hey, I'm the CEO, and they just used a Gmail with a CEO's name, send me a copy of everyone's W-2. And so they did. Uh, so the insurance carrier said, yeah, that is just 
not coverable. That's uh, pure, kind of pure human error, liable on your part. You guys need to cover that. Um, another variation I saw was a similar thing. It was you know somebody had put all their passwords into their notes on their um, iPad and hadn't bothered putting a password on the iPad and lost the iPad while traveling. An insurance company turned that down. So human error, I would say, is where you can boil down the vast majority of insurance denials I've seen clients. There are a couple of more technical ones that get into it, but I think the biggest example, if I was to take the last five clients I've worked with on a data breach who have had to cover it all themselves and not had insurance coverage, it's all been because they had a simple, preventable kind of human error, but simple training could have uh, dealt with. You know, a simple training session to tell that secretary, unless it is an in-person request or a phone request directly from the CEO, you don't send out W-2s for everybody, or, you know, passwords never leave the system. Um, they certainly don't go onto your personal iPad, and certainly if they do, everything has to be password protected at the very least. Simple policies like that could have prevented all of us. It's, uh, it comes down to there's a basic standard, right, for when you are customizing your protection for your. It goes, but you know what, what we said is you you know what your data is, you know how much it's worth, and there's a basic standard to prepare it. If you don't even meet that basic standard, you can't expect an insurance policy to cover you, effectively cover for what I call your stupidity. Bruce, yeah, please. a question for the rest of the panel. Um, because one of the things I'm seeing is uh, a lot of demand for certifications for ISO 27001, 27002, NIST. And what, we're, the, what our customers are telling us is if I take this to my insurance provider, it will lower my rates because I can prove uh, I've got some provable standard that I'm implementing best practices. Are you seeing that? Are any of you seeing that? Again, I can jump in on that. Um, I would say, again, I'll defer to the Craig and Pike folks for actual kind of uh, insurance industry knowledge, but as far as the contracts that I work on, um, I'm absolutely seeing that. But if you can at least show that you have met industry standard practices, um, whether it's ISO 2701, whether it's your, you know, um, some other NIST standard, whether it's some other practice that is going to be applicable, then they are able to get better rates when they go out. Um, and that makes sense to me from a negotiation point of view and I, with the brokers I work with, which is it may not be exactly the right standard. Maybe they missed and they, they overshot and they did a standard that, hey, you didn't really need to be 27001 uh, backshot 2 certified. But good for you. It shows that you're protecting it better than you necessarily need to have, and so that is a good factor that the insurance carrier looks at when they come in and they kind of give us our rate. Excellent. Thank you. And I'm finding that to be a competitive advantage as well, especially if you're in financial technology. Having those certifications um, can actually help you compete for um, the ability to work with major financial institutions. Any other questions out there? What, time for one more, Cindy, you think? Or we're doing okay? And I appreciate no one asking questions about Hillary Clinton's emails while I'm up here. That's a, a refreshing change of pace for you me. You just took so. my question. That was it. <laughs> uh, no, no comment. Yeah. yeah. That was his so, question. So I know, you know, I mean, during, during Bruce's presentation, you know, uh, you mentioned Bitcoin was used to purchase a lot of this stuff on the dark web. At what point in time, I guess, when does regulation catch up with with the free marketplace and commerce. And I mean, we're having this conversation here today in Las Vegas and, you know, the former FBI agents involved are, are, are countries speaking to one another? Cause this is obviously a 
global issue. This is not just a United States issue. And how are our foreign departments working with one another in trying to combat this worldwide, knowing that sometimes, I guess, there's governments at, at, uh, um, uh, in battle with one another, but then you also have to work together to try and combat this as much as possible. Is there sharing of information? Yeah, let, me, let me try that, and then I want to turn it over to Ian to talk about GDPR uh, and explain what that is in particular. But let me just say from the federal law enforcement perspective, there is very robust cooperation between uh, at least those governments who are allies and who cooperate, uh, what we call the five eyes predominantly, U.S., uh, U.K., Canada, New Zealand, Australia, very, very close cooperation. Uh, but then also close, close cooperation with our, our other European partners. You have to keep in mind, though, that there are other countries out there, uh, this won't surprise anyone, who are adversaries on many levels, including in terms of cybersecurity, North Korea, Russia, China, uh, with whom we do not co cooperate, and in fact, from whom we see significant nation-state attacks, uh, Iran, uh, for example, as well. And so, uh, yes, there's a lot of international cooperation, uh, but there's also a huge international nation-state threat to both our government and to private sector, sector organizations. And so that's uh, a big part of what the FBI does. Uh, beyond that, let me just say that uh, at the federal level, Congress is very, very interested in trying to get the public policy right in terms of uh, statutory changes that may be appropriate to to ensure that uh, commerce is functioning the way it should function in our country and internationally. I will tell you that uh, trying to explain cybersecurity to Congress is is you know like my teenager trying to explain algebra to me again. You know, it's virtually impossible. Uh, it's a, it's a challenge, but it's uh, and I don't really mean that. Uh, in a way that's uh, disparaging to Congress. You know, it's a complicated issue. Uh, Congress has a lot of issues on its plate, but there is a, there's a core group within Congress that very much wants to get the U.S. policy right and is spending a lot of time on that. I would imagine that's true across the country, too. I've been a little out of the loop at the state level, but I know Senator Dennis and Senator Parks are here. I know that the state legislature has tackled uh, some of these issues, and, and I'm sure will going forward as well. So it's a complicated public policy set of issues, but it's, it's something that is getting a lot of focus. With that, let me ask Ian maybe to tell us a little bit about this new GDPR uh, EU regulation that many people in this room might think, well, if, if they know about GDPR, well, that's a European thing, doesn't apply to my company. Ian will tell us that that's not necessarily the case. Absolutely. Um, to tie it, uh, GDPR is a great example of you know, regulation trying to catch up. To go to your question um, initially, and then jump into GDPR about when does regulation catch up, I would say the answer to that is never. Um, it goes through waves. I've been practicing in this area for you know, almost two decades now, and every five years or so, it catches up, and then the bad guys jump ahead. And then it catches up and it jumps ahead. And so privacy, cybersecurity, data privacy, whatever you want to call this practice, seems to come in and out of vogue every five years because of that, because it becomes an issue. Right now, so in the late 90s, we had the Privacy Directive and uh, the Data Privacy Act, and a bunch of stuff happened then. Then 2005, five years later, we had PCI become much more important and all that type of stuff. And then 2010, we saw copper and everything, and now we're on to 
the latest round, the five-year cycle with GDPR in Europe being the big push. And it does apply uh, to us here because it's already setting a de facto standard and we're seeing states like California introduce bills to try and kind of copy it and mirror it and keep up. So that's a great example of working together where you know, the Europeans took a look at our laws. Um, some guy in Germany, a privacy um, kind of activist in Germany, uh, brought a lawsuit, got rid of the privacy uh, safe harbor we had here because uh, made a big social issue out of how insecure other countries outside of the European Union are as far as privacy goes, led to the enactment a couple of years ago of a law that goes into effect next week, which is the first European-wide privacy law that is supposed to put a uniform privacy kind of schema in place that hopefully will do exactly what you're talking about, sync up regulation across an entire continent to protect against this risk. Um, GDPR, apart from the fact that the statistics are not looking good for everybody being ready by next Friday, but let's say in an ideal world, everybody was in 100% compliance by Friday, the implementation date. Even then it's still going to not be the magic bullet because the bad guys will jump ahead of that. Um, you know, and GDPR has all sorts of new standards that now we're seeing the U.S. elevate to, whether it's states like California that are introducing bills that look similar. There's a couple in Congress that we've heard of that are kind of making their early way around to kind of play with a federal GDPR light type thing here in the U.S., um, we also have the fact that you can't really have a double standard between how you treat a U.S. customer and a European company and not expose yourself to a risk of like unfair trade practices because you're treating somebody unfairly. So it's ra uh, a rising tide is raising all boats. Uh, GDPR is a great example, right? It's a European-wide uh, privacy policy that's requiring everybody to adhere to certain um, standards with respect to security, everyone to adhere to certain standards with respect to data privacy rights, and cybersecurity and privacy are two very different things, right? GDPR addresses both. Uh, cybersecurity is how you protect all that data and all that good stuff you have. Privacy is what you actually do with it and how you respect people's rights with respect to that data. You can have the most secure system in the world but still have a privacy violation because you use it badly. You can have the most insecure system in the world that is terrible from a cybersecurity point of view but not have any privacy violations because you follow the principles of no this consent on transfer, that type of thing. So they're two very different things and GDPR is trying to tie the two together. So to your question, regulation, GDPR is trying to influence this across the country. It's got um, agreed in place with the Department of Commerce to give, you know, kind of a jurisdiction so the Department of Commerce can enforce it here, the data privacy and data protection authorities and agencies in Europe can enforce it, the FTC. So they're trying through this law Europe to impose kind of a, a more consistent schema in any way that European data is disseminated, even if it's here in the US. But we are, we're still going to see people jump ahead of it. Okay, well, why don't we wrap it up then, and, and let me just start by thanking again our, our sponsors, CenturyLink and Craig and Pike and Nevada Public Radio, and um, who am I missing? Of course, um, the Chamber. Here we are. Uh, thank you for uh, the Las Vegas, to the Las Vegas Metropolitan Chamber of Commerce. This was uh, a great collaborative effort, and I want to thank you all for being here. Thank you to Cindy and her entire team uh, and Randy and his team for putting this on. And uh, if you could join me in thanking the panelists as well, we'll wrap it up. Thank you all.
Thank you for listening to the Brownstein High at Farber Shrek podcast series. If you like what you hear, please subscribe and rate us on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app. Visit bhfs.com for more information.